A trial date is set for Trump's document case. We'll discuss how this affects the primary and general election calendars and the former president's prospects of staying out of jail. We're also going to talk about a new report from the World Health Organization that seems to suggest that some artificial sugars may cause cancer. We'll untangle that and tell you if you have anything to worry about. Uh, then we'll talk about the rise and fall of chief diversity officers and also unpack a new poll that shows what Americans are looking for at work. All of this and more on The Lost Debate Show, a show for political eclectics. Hello, everybody. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, Judge Aileen Cannon, Aileen Eileen, I never know what to, know what to say there, but uh, she ordered Friday that the trial uh, in the classified documents case down in Federal District Court in Miami uh, is set to begin May 2024. So a long ways out. This is different than what the prosecutors were asking for. They wanted a mid-December trial date, which would have put the trial basically right in the middle of the Iowa caucuses. And if this trial date holds, Ricky, this will be kind of towards the tail end of the primary election. By mid-May, the previous election that Trump ran in um, for the primary in 2016, he uh, had it already wrapped up by then. Uh, there still are a couple states that could be lingering at that point, but this doesn't seem accidental. I think that she set this trial to essentially say, all right, we want to make sure this doesn't overlap with the heart of the primary season. And so I'm curious, have you been watching CNN at all in their coverage of, of this revelation? <laughs> of the of the trial? No, I don't watch no. CNN, period. But okay. yeah, I'm, wow. worried, I'm a little concerned about what you're about to show <laughs> me here. Um, well, so so special counsel Jack Smith, who's in, involved in this case, um, they I guess they have nothing to talk about or they are just like really standing this guy hard. But they happen to send their uh, their cameras to follow him around and they got some really salacious footage. Let's let's see that. Of course, on the special counsel side, that's the Justice Department and its appointee, Jack Smith. Jack Smith is tight-lipped. He was spotted today by CNN going to Subway for lunch, picking up a sandwich, leaving and not saying a word. So no comment from the special counsel's office on whether they plan to indict Donald Trump and when that is potentially going to happen for the second time for a federal case. Turns out even Jack Smith can't resist a $5 footlong. That's according to what we see right there, new and exclusive CNN video of the special counsel at Subway. Declining, though, to respond to reporters' questions about today's big news. And just one last point. Jack Smith, remember when the classified documents target letter, when Trump announced that, there was a lot of commentary. It was Jack Smith making a mistake here. Is he leaving this all to Donald Trump? And then they released the indictment, and we all said, wow. Wow. We read it. We saw the documentation. We saw the level of detail. Jack Smith going to Subway today is a message to Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump tries to intimidate people. He tries to bully people. He tries to scare you away. That was Jack Smith with no words and a simple $5 sub in his hand saying, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, the imagery was uh, uh, was intentional yeah. and spoke by him. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I don't have much to say about that. One thing I do want to mention is, and, and you know, that's, you know, I guess that gets eyeballs. I, I'm no expert intentional. on Intentional. It spoke volumes. But, but aside from CNN, their coverage, I think... The really fascinating thing here is, I think in pushing the trial date here until May at the earliest, right? Like there's going to be all sorts of motions to push it back even more. And there's a lot of speculation that 
setting a trial, a preliminary trial date for May means it might not happen at all during the election season after all the motions are filed. This opens the door for either the Georgia or New York case to slip in the calendar or the pending DC case against Trump on January 6th related matters, which would make some sense that that one could slip in because if that one goes to DC, depending on which judge gets it, there's less classified information at issues. So there's probably less issues of getting security clearances, et cetera, for all the different people involved. And that certainly is true of New York and Georgia, two cases that probably require very little security clearances. So you can imagine those slipping into the calendar. So that's what I'm going to be watching for is just like, all right, well, what does this room in the calendar mean for Trump's legal liability? It could actually harm him here. If I were him, I'd, I'd almost want to get the, the Florida case out of the way, put it in the middle of the calendar, block everything else out, bank on the fact that you get a favorable jury in Florida and that you could use that as a political win. Ricky, I don't know about you. I drink a I drink Diet Coke here and there and certainly drink a lot of things with fake sugars in them. Uh, and so it caught my attention. You know, there've been all these headlines over the past few weeks about whether artificial sweeteners and sugars cause cancer or not. So it got me really concerned. So we wanted to talk about this. And, and the key here is that there's a new report from the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is a body of the World Health Organization, that... Uh, it seems to suggest, at least according to headlines, that aspartame could maybe cause cancer. And aspartame is one of the world's most widely used artificial sweeteners. It's what's found in Diet Coke, a lot of sugar-free ice cream, cereals, yogurts. It was approved a long time ago, decades ago, before I was born. And its brand names are NutraSweet, Equal, Sugar Twin. And it's 180 times sweeter than sucrose, which is table sugar. And it's actually just as caloric as sugar, but it's so sweet that the reason why when you drink your, your diet soda or whatever, uh, the reason why it shows up as zero calories is it only takes a very small amount of it to produce the kind of sweetness that you need. And so the World Health Organization seemed to suggest that this could be cancerous, Ricky, um, is this enough to make you put down your Diet Coke? No, I'm quite literally drinking it as we speak right now. But yeah, so this study specifically is, it, it says that there was a possible link. That's what the WHO came out with um, between aspartame and liver cancer, a specific kind called hepatocellular carcinoma. Um, and there's a link potentially in humans and possibly also animals, according to the WHO, and, but they were not able to figure out what mechanism might be causing that. Um, and they looked at three large human studies across the U.S. and Europe. I would say, however, the when you look at the categories that they're putting it in, in terms of like classifying it as a potential carcinogen, it's in a category called 2B, which is one of four groups. It's not at at the top of the list, it's in the the weak evidence um, kind of loosely connected uh, area of classification. So I'm not hugely concerned. The FDA also came out and said, we don't agree with this um, and also said that the, the study had significant shortcomings, um, called aspartame one of the most studied food additives in the human food supply. Um, and they had no safety concerns personally here in America within like a, a healthy daily limit, which for reference, a 150 pound person would need to drink nine to 14 cans of diet soda a day to hit that limit. So I think for the vast majority of people, 
in the scheme of things and all the other weird stuff in our environment and foods that we eat and stuff, I just don't think unless you're a serious addict pounding these back in the dozens every day, I don't think this is a major concern. Yeah, to add a little bit of color to what you said in terms of these groups. So a group one carcinogen, according to that WHO body, um, would include things like cigarettes, but also cured meats like hot dogs and bacon, which side conversation for another time. People, if you're really concerned about cancer, you should really look into cured meats because I think it's one of those areas that people don't talk about enough. Um, so that would be group one. Group 2A is probably carcinogenic, which includes red meat and night shifts at work. Uh, group 2B, which is what we're talking about here, includes things like pickled vegetables and aloe vera, which is possibly carcinogenic, which is what they put this in. And like you said, this there's some issues with the data here. So um, issue number one is this was based on observational studies, not controlled studies. So this could be just straight correlation. Uh, they they included some mechanistic studies like you talked about that seemed to suggest that there could be a possible biological mechanism, but certainly doesn't find that conclusively. And, you know, one of my favorite sort of commentators on this kind of stuff, Dr. Peter Atia, uh, he was asked about this recently. This was not specifically in relation to the World Health Organization study, but um, he was asked just about artificial sugars generally. Uh, and when he was asked about aspartame, this is what he had to say. The reality of it is, if there is toxicity to it, it's probably impossible to measure at regular doses. This is a substance that at least the last time I checked, had more data on it from a safety perspective than any other molecule tested by the FDA. Where do I think these sweeteners potentially wreak the most havoc? You know, one is I, I, I think that they probably increase your appetite for sugar anyway. So if you're, if you're consuming them in an effort to avoid sugar, um, you have to be just mindful of the fact that am I robbing Peter to pay Paul? Hmm. Um, if you really want to eliminate sugar, as one of your dietary strategies, uh, you might just be better off reducing sweet things. So essentially what what Atia is saying is like, look, there is no acute to toxicity here. And there's, you know, FDA has looked at this for a long time, haven't found anything. Um, and by and large, there aren't any chronic toxicities. But on the acute front, there was one study related to what Atia is saying that found a, what's called a cephalic insulin response, which means that your body was anticipating. So it basically means that you were secreting insulin in anticipation of your meal. So you're kind of expecting a sweet thing, you're secreting insulin. Um, and so uh, what if you're thinking about that in relation to what Atiyah is saying is you're conditioning your body if you take these artificial sweeteners a lot to expect sugar, there is an actual response. You, do, you don't want to be secreting insulin in response to something that isn't sugar. That's not good for you. But it's not some kind of emergency, Ricky. It's not, I don't think based on the evidence that we have today, obviously out of an abundance of caution, you don't need artificial sugar. So like if you just want to cut it out, there's certainly no problem with that. But there doesn't seem to be any reason for panic. Not to mention like the stat that you brought up before about being 180 times more powerful than sugar. I think that's illustrative of the fact that even if in similar quantities, it could be potentially dangerous or, or a carcinogen. If you're eating one 180th of it or consuming one 180th of what you normally would. I mean, I think the trade-off there is is really worth considering. And, you know, of course, like a diet soda is not a nutritional need and like soda is, is superfluous calories that 
aren't nutritious in any way, shape or form. But like, I, I think that the alternative of drinking like a 200 calorie can of, of non-diet soda is probably considerably more detrimental to your health in a long-term situation. And I, I mean, it's not to say that, that diet soda is like a, a net positive, but at least it's it's a better trade off than the alternative. I mean, this is what what Atia said when he he did a write up on it. He said consuming aspartame is more like getting on a commercial airplane. Statistically speaking, you're very safe, but something bad could happen that we're not aware of yet. Consuming sugar in the amounts we typically do, by contrast, is downright harmful. <laughs> so that's pretty clear. Obvi- there's, it's worth noting that there are other artificial sweeteners: um, stevia, ASK, saccharin, which is sweet and low sucralose, which is what's in Splenda, monk fruit. And you could read all about all of these. We can link in the show notes to um, a write-up that uh, Atia did on these. And I think it, by and large, like there are, there are exceptions within each of those, like by and large, finding that there just isn't anything conclusive to say any one of those is that dangerous. So I think people can be relatively safe here, but I think the question is, what are you, like, what are you compensating for? you know, this sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul point that he's making. Like if you truly want to wean yourself off of the dependency on sugar, you might want to use this as a bridge uh, and then just slowly cut down to the point where you don't crave uh, sweets anymore. And then that would probably uh, condition you not to make really bad choices when there's super high sugar stuff available and you might be at your lowest level of willpower. But but I don't I don't think there's any reason for panic. That's the bottom line. Well, I'm glad that we're here to throw cold water on this because I feel like the the media circuit of just panic over this was so nutty considering that we're talking about something in the same the same bracket as pickled vegetables. So I think we can all chill out. Well, it's funny to me that there's so much attention to this one question, which is artificial sweeteners, and not nearly enough on some of the meat products that we eat and how carcinogenic those are. And like- Hot dogs are class one. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, if you, and, and look, this is not like a way to smuggle in the ethical argument. There are a lot of meat products that have way lower uh, evidence. I'll smuggle it in if you want. Yeah. <laughs> but bacon, <laughs> hot dogs, um, certain deadly meats, you should look at the data on this if you haven't looked at it yet. It is horrendous, like very, very strong evidence that those are carcinogenic. So, and it, you know, I don't feel like there's nearly enough of a discussion in the media about that. I'll, I'll avoid my, my moral grandstanding, but could not agree more. <laughs> Ricky, there, there was this fascinating article in the Wall Street Journal about chief diversity officers. Um, where should we start on this one? Because I think this, this really paints a picture about a, a relatively new and perhaps short-lived profession. Well, I mean, I think the place to start is pre-2020, where half of the c- companies in the S&P had a diversity chief diversity officer in some shape or form. So less than half, actually. And then by last year, that had swelled to three and four. And I think really what happened was a a moral panic, not necessarily completely unfounded, but in, in the depths of 2020, I think a lot of, at least in my read, I'm already getting biased here, but I think a lot of companies got really terrified of the Twitter mob or being called out for doing the wrong thing and felt that they had to release statements on on racial issues and social issues and felt as though 
if they didn't rise to the level of, of being an activist company in some way, shape, or form, that they were doing the country a disservice. And a lot of them solved this by hiring somebody to essentially um, facilitate this activism for them or facilitate workplace diversity or or help diversify their workforce, whatever it is. But by 2022, there was a $4 billion industry in the US. But I think because it was such a, a quick reaction and so much money was thrown at, at this specific issue, now that the economy is cooling off, now that social issues are cooling off, potentially also in, in the wake of um, the affirmative action ruling in the Supreme Court, there's been a huge downfall in this industry. Um, these actually people in the DEI world have a 40% higher turnover than their HR counterparts. Searches for similar jobs are down by 75%. Thousands of people in this industry have been laid off since last year. And Netflix, Disney, and Warner Brothers are among those who've uh, nixed their really high-level diversity officers. Yeah, it's funny. You know, People race to create these positions, and the minute they could get away with it, they were eliminating them. It's really wild. And the rise of these positions is staggering. So in 2018, less than half of companies in the S&P 500 employed someone in that role. By 2022, three out of four companies had created the positions. This is according to a study from Russell Reynolds, an executive search firm. So they were creating these positions really fast. It looks like executives are looking to get rid of these. Uh, and I think the question is, what do these people do is a really important question. And as you're reading the Wall Street Journal piece, it seems, and, you, and there are quotes from actual chief diversity officers in this piece, and it seems like it's everything from what you'd think, which is ensuring a diverse workforce itself, which I think is less controversial, though obviously a really important debate and discussion about what that looks like and what that means to like weighing in on like product and all this kind of stuff to then, I think in the most extreme case, pushing the company to weigh in on current events that have nothing to do with the company. And and I've seen that last piece a lot. And I think that when you mix those three, which is a bit of mission creep for a position, like a relatively newly created position, I could see why people are revolting internally at these positions. Not to mention the the fact that a lot of people are hired in full-time roles, and I think there's pressure to justify why you're there 40 hours a week and to stay busy and potentially to agitate for things that might backfire on the company because you were you know, hired with this singular focus, whereas a lot of companies now are folding in like DEI efforts into larger HR roles, which I think makes more sense rather than having one specific person. Um, but then there's also just the fact that for a lot of Americans, what happened and came out of DEI trainings and, and mandated trainings and with their employers were things that really alienated them. Like there were lots of companies that did affinity group trainings and, and split up employer employees by race, which I don't believe is an effective tactic in actually bringing people together, in my personal opinion. Coca-Cola infamously hired a, an external diversity consultant to come in and give a presentation, which included a slide on how to be less white, which is just fascinating to me. Um, and there's not a lot of data to show that these are actually like meaningful positions that are creating change. I'm sure that there are notable exceptions and notable fields where where there's underrepresented groups. And I mean, I can even think of like 
IBM and their their mission to use their apprenticeship program to reach out to students from underprivileged backgrounds to help them get on the track of of going down like the software route without necessarily having to go to college. I think that's probably like the perfect test case of where this sort of role could be really useful and, and beneficial to people. But a Harvard Business Review study that followed more than 800 companies for 30 years found that there was no meaningful benefit to um, having like large-scale diversity programs in your company. Um, and I think, you know, while, while they might be well-intentioned, I think a lot of companies that are cutting back in general are seeing that this is the first thing on the chopping block because these roles might not be justifiable for for the, the pay that they demand. Yeah, and th- there was a fascinating part of this Wall Street Journal article where they talked to Danny Monroe, who was the chief diversity officer for Mass General Brigham, you know, the super prestigious hospital up in Boston, and uh, and Danny appears to be like a leader among chief diversity officers and runs a convening every year of more than 100 chief diversity officers. And even Danny Monroe said, quote, these were knee-jerk reactions um, and said that the there was a very short period of time where they were adding tons of people who didn't have much impact and who weren't necessarily picked with a lot of thoughts. And you're elevating these people into super senior positions, often with a very murky job description. And, you know, no wonder there are issues here. And I also think that in a lot of these companies, I I honestly do think it's really important to invest in a diverse workforce. I just think that trying to do a Band-Aid solution and do it really quick like that, it alienates everybody. It alienates the people you're hiring. It alienates the people who are there. When people don't feel like the process is fair, uh, then people revolt. And I've seen this firsthand. Like I've got a family member who, you know, was is caught up in a in an organization, a, a medium-sized organization that had such a position and was trying to apply for another position that was more senior than hers. And I had to basically coach her as a lawyer through this process because it was so murky. It was so unfair to her. She was basically explicitly told she couldn't get the job. And even though she was a person of color, she wasn't the kind of person of color that they basically were explicitly saying they were looking for before they made the hire. And I had to consult her and be like, look, like they're crossing every possible line and they need, need to give you a fair shot to apply for this position. And I think this is what's alienating. And this is a very liberal person, by the way, uh, <laughs> my family member. So it's like, this is pissing off even like run of the mill liberals who are just like, yeah, this is just chaos. Uh, and it's not very thoughtful. And it's more about the PR for the company than it is about any effort to you know, remedy societal wrong, which in many ways mimics what Harvard was doing, which is on the on the face of it appears to be about uh, diversity and inclusion, but really is about Harvard's story that is trying to tell the public. That's one question I had for you, because I think um, like in this Wall Street Journal article, there's some people saying that they want to get ahead of the um, kind of reverberations of the Supreme Court ruling on affirmative action. And I'm curious whether you think that that ruling will have a an actual legal repercussion for private companies that want to hire in a similar way, perhaps as Harvard was admitting students. Yeah. I think it's less of a constitutional issue than it is a statutory issue because the civil rights act title six of the civil rights act prohibits people receiving federal funds from discriminating on the basis of race, but title seven applies that to private companies. Now this hasn't really been uniformly enforced. I think the federal government, and, and you could imagine 
often it's the Biden administration. It's the president who's got to bring these cases often through the DOJ. There are other ways you could bring a case, but by and large, that's the quickest and most efficient route. They, you, they just haven't been applying Title VII in the way that I think a lot of people are skeptical of these programs would want. I don't think it's a one-to-one relationship between what the court decided and what's happening here. Although I think it, the court's decision, I think signals that they're going to be aggressive on this kind of stuff. And the, the, the problem for plaintiffs though here is that it's often murky. It's very hard to prove. Like the reason why Harvard, the case even got where it was is because you had the existence of standardized testing results and actual messaging from the admissions officers and uh, leaders of Harvard, basically giving the whole thing away. I think that sophisticated companies are going to cloak their decisions uh, in a sort of race-neutral processes that have uh, outcomes that are very much race-conscious. And again, I actually think it's really important for companies to have racially and otherwise and, and other kinds of diverse groups. I just don't think that. Uh, the way they're going about it is either fair, transparent, or very thoughtful. And so, but yeah, to your question, I do think not necessarily straight line. I do think there's that there are going to be implications from the the court's posture that they showed in the Harvard and UNC cases and what they could be doing to private employers. It's interesting to see the way that I feel like tables have turned in terms of like corporate cancel culture recently. Like in 2020, I think you ran a serious risk of like getting in the crossfire of some culture war if you said or did the wrong thing on and like poked the left. And I think that there was very much a a threat of like the left wing Twitter mob coming for you. And now it's like, what is it? The X? Now it's not even Twitter. Um, (laughs) You have the the complete opposite (laughs) inverse now with like. Even though I, I have some issues with some some corporations moves and like the general alienating messaging coming out of corporate America, I'm not on this like boycott bandwagon that a lot of conservatives are on just because I don't think you should fight fire with fire. But it's interesting to see that like the whole concept of a diversity officer or some of the things that they might be pushing uh, companies towards doing and saying that in 2020 would have benefited them financially and protected them from the mob is precisely the opposite now and could end up getting them them boycotted or canceled by the right. So I do feel like they've been on both sides of the coin in pretty rapid clip. Yeah, I think one one piece of evidence that the that the tide has turned or whatever. I don't know what the metaphor is with tides. But the is Warren Buffett was asked about this at the recent Berkshire Hathaway um retreat or whatever shareholder meeting that they have, that sort of famous gathering, and was asked about a photo, I think their Christmas card photo or something that I guess was mostly are all white, uh, and this is what he had to say. No, we, we will select board members, and we lay it out, and, and we've done so for years, and I think we've been much more explicit uh, than most companies. We are looking for people who are business savvy, shareholder-oriented, and have a special interest in Berkshire, and we found people like that. And as a result, I think, I, uh, I think we've got the best board that we could have. I find this a really fascinating answer because first of all, he didn't yes, people attacked him about it, but it, you know, he wasn't quote unquote canceled in any meaningful way because of that and it'd be hard to imagine what that would look like with Warren Buffett. But two is that most CEOs will say, Hey, 
of course, we want a representative group and we want to make sure they, you know, adhere to the Berkshire values and they have the skill sets we need, yada, yada, yada. And then the outcome of that is that they they find a way to create a diverse team, board, et cetera. What's fascinating to me about Buffett is he's kind of like in I don't give a fuck mode and he's just like, nah, like I'm not even talking about this, which I find to be a really fascinating response to that question. I mean, he's old enough that I feel like in that life chapter, it's like, why even? He's seen as and as many tides turn on this front as as anyone has, especially in this rapid right. clip, like DEI is the the thing you need now. And then two years later, it's like, oh no, this is actually going to get you boycotted. So I don't blame him. I'm with them. Here's what the American people think about this, at least according to a Pew survey. This is from May 2023. So uh, a majority of employed U.S. adults, 56%, say focusing on DEI at work is a good thing, but about three in 10 say it's extremely or very important. So people say it's a good thing, but the passions are are way less extreme on this. Uh, so people don't really think it's, uh, it's that important to them. Uh, about six in 10 say their company has policies that ensure fairness and hiring pay promotions. 52% say they have trainings or meetings DEI at work. Uh, 33% say that their workplace offers salary transparency. 30, uh, 30%, or sorry, 26% say they have affinity groups. And this is very different data, as you can imagine, Ricky, based on politics. Most Democrats and Democratic-leaning workers, 78% say focusing focusing on DEI at work is a good thing, compared with 30% of Republicans and Republican leaners. That's actually higher than I would have expected on both counts. Yeah, well, I think that comes down to like the semantic overload of a term like that, because what, you're against diversity and equity and inclusion? <laughs> well, it's the term like, I mean, of art, I, right? No, truly, it's yeah. like a... It no, yeah, exactly. Way, That's right. what I'm saying. Like, yeah, if you're not familiar with the connotations of that term and what that actually might mean in practice, then I think that's something that like, like even I feel like it's, it's akin to the Black Lives Matter slogan of if you, if you took issue with something going on with that company or something, like it was some sort of indication that you didn't believe in the very evident truth of that title. Yeah, there's a there's a really fascinating other part of this cross tabs, which is the younger people are, the more they support these things. So, sixty eight percent of people ages twenty eighteen to twenty nine uh, support efforts at increasing diversity, equity, inclusion. Uh, it's only forty six percent for fifty to sixty four year olds. Actually, fifty to sixty four year olds are the least supportive of this. Even sixty five plusers are more supportive than the 50 to 64 year olds. Uh, and also as you break it down by race, it's fascinating. So white people are the least supportive. Women are way more supportive than men by double digits. Uh, but among groups of color, blacks are most supportive of this. Asians too, Hispanics third. So, you know, more than double digit difference between blacks and Hispanics is also really fascinating. Well, Ricky, keeping on the, the conversation about workplace perceptions and polls, uh, YouGov just released a poll that asked Americans to evaluate 30 occupations and their own occupation based on happiness, impact, and pay adequacy. And uh, there are some really, really interesting findings here. So the occupations that Americans think have the most positive impact tend to be the most under paid. Uh, politicians, CEOs, and professional athletes are seen to be the most overpaid, but rank near the bottom when it comes to perceived positive impact. Farmers, factory workers, and restaurant workers are thought to have the most positive impact and are seen as some of the most 
underpaid occupations. Um, there are a few jobs like doctors, computer programmers who score well on everything, pay, happiness, and positive impact. And uh, journalists um, didn't do so well here. Pollsters didn't do so well either. It seems like Americans think that journalists are overpaid and also uh, are bad for society. Ricky, how do you feel about that? Do you feel attacked? No, because I feel like I kind of agree with them by and large, <laughs> at least in their modern form. I feel like it's it's an art that's devolved from, from its original intention of holding uh, the powerful to account, in my view. But um, interesting to me that farmers seem to be just like across the board, the most popular people in this survey, which surprised me. They're the, the number one rated most underpaid and number one most positive impact as well. So people are, are big farmer fans. Yeah, related to that. So the impact part of things, the top five for impact, meaning what what people think is the, you know, the most positive for society. Farmers, nurses, construction workers, doctors, engineers. Now, my mom is a nurse, my dad's a doctor, and my family has got a few construction workers. Shout out to my uncle Richie. Uh, and engineers. My dad's side is basically all doctors and engineers. So, that's the impact side of things. Now, if you go to the, the negative impact side of things, it's politicians, journalists, CEOs, lawyers, investment bakers. Now, I've spent my I've spent my life as either <laughs> a lawyer, journalist, CEO, or an advisor to politicians and trainer of politicians my whole life. So I am making the world, according to this poll, so everyone hates you. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe in my next thing, I'll I'll open a farm down in Mississippi. You know, there's some some land for sale down there. So Mozambic farm. Oh, stop it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I th- I think probably the most depressing outcome of this for me of all of them is the fact that the number one most negative impact is politicians, which I don't disagree with people by and large, but I feel like that's a symptom of a democracy that's just clearly not serving people if this is their opinion of those who are being elected like that, that is a really disturbing statistic. Yeah. And it goes to show how alienated people are from their representation and how generally unhappy we are with the state of our country. It's really sad. I agree. And, you know, I, I said this to people, you know, when there's sort of the hypothetical, like, who would you want to have dinner with, yada, yada, yada. And I've always said, and actually I've been in some real life situations that are similar to this, where if I'm at a dinner, and at the table is like a really accomplished writer, a really accomplished scientist, a really accomplished doctor, a really accomplished teacher, and then a really accomplished politician. That politician to me is probably the least uh, exciting person to talk to at that table. Maybe it's I've just spent too much time with politicians. And what's fascinating is they're, I think they're relatively underpaid relative to how hard they work. Um, like politicians are on 24 seven, usually raising money, campaigning, et cetera. It's terrible for your family. They're often some of the least happy people that I've ever met. You know, when I'm coaching candidates, it's, it's often more therapy than anything else. And to me, they've traded fame. They want fame for a lot of other things that lead to happiness in life. And it's almost like fame without the money you know, is politics. Like you invite all the scrutiny that comes with fame. Unless you're a Biden. Unless you're, oh yeah. Or yeah, he's the <laughs> only one. Uh, so um, yeah, so I think like politics is a pretty thankless position by and large. I think like people like, like with, it's, it reminds me of actors. Like I think people look at actors and they think of Robert Downey Jr. They'd look at politicians. They think of the the big household names 
who are like, you know, mega celebrities and they don't think about like the life of your average like city council member, et cetera. But what's also fascinating here is uh, when you look at this happiness, uh, this, you know, perceived happiness, um, professional athletes rank number one, CEOs two, entrepreneurs three, engineers four, doctors five. There's nothing too surprising there, although I think people overweight how happy entrepreneurs actually are. Um, when they look at the least happy, it's restaurant workers, customer service representatives, retail sales workers, factory workers, and teachers. Um, that is, you know, like, I, I think like this is fascinating. And I think like this is a roadmap to thinking about how do you improve the, these professions? Because when you look at this, when you look at the cross tabs, there's a huge link between pay and happiness. If you look at the top five that I just mentioned, those are all relatively well-paid positions. When you look at the least happy positions, they're all relatively low-paid positions. And I don't think that's an accident. And I also think, I mean, at least for restaurant workers, customer service representatives, and teachers, these are three areas where there have been severe staffing shortages. And I feel like the people who are still in those positions are really just getting like creamed as a result. And I think that a lot of people might be responding to that fact. Like, I don't think restaurant workers would have rest been number one pre-pandemic, I would guess. I think that's something that we've only more recently come around to. Or even like, you might be more biased to say customer service representatives if you just got off the phone with like United as I did and wanted to kill the person who ended up on the other side of the line after an hour, which is not their fault, but that's a staffing shortage issue. Um, like I, I wonder how much that plays a role in this because I do think that, and and teachers as well. I mean, post pandemic, there's a there's a major shortage, and and I feel like everyone is worse off as a result. And and maybe typical Americans and consumers are are sympathetic to that. Yeah, and I do think that customer service representative is an interesting case study because it's it's a staffing issue, it's a compensation issue, but it's probably also a, a an autonomy issue. Like that person is not really empowered to do their job. Probably they probably have a very limited amount of wiggle room to help you. Uh, and so they're there to talk to you, but they probably don't have that many tools at their disposal. And this reminds me of a 2021 study that Populous did. This is from Todd Rose, who we've had on the podcast before, who does the revealed preferences. So he uses this, you know, sophisticated statistical model to get people to say what they truly believe. And we'll link in the show notes to that episode because he describes his, his methodology there. I won't go into it here, but he has a workplace survey that he puts out every few years. And he ranks people both by what they actually say they believe and what they think society believes. And some of this is interesting. So uh, number one on both personal and perceived rank is I am well compensated. Not too much of a surprise there. People want money. Um, number two on personal rank is I can work remotely or in a hybrid home. Uh, and that roughly ranks with perceived rank. I have good benefits is three similar. I can do my work while still having time to do things I care about, both unperceived and regular. Now, where the, it's interesting is where the perceived rank and the actual rank deviate. And that's where, that's where I'm going to be here, which is I can plan around my work schedule. Five on actual rank, number 32 on perceived rank. I feel personally interested in my work. Number six in actual rank, number 20 in perceived rank. 
and I'm trusted to choose how best to do my work, eight versus 29. So that gets to the customer service representative. My organization respects the privacy of employees' personal lives, 10 versus 39. I find that fascinating. I'm wondering what's going on there. Um, my ideas are listened to and considered by others, 11 versus 37. So like, this is where it gets to, like, I think some of these squishier, like, how are you being treated? Are your ideas being respected? Um, are, but alternatively, are your ideas being respected? Are you being included? Are you given like a certain amount of creativity where they work, but also are you not being stifled in a certain way? That whole personalized thing, Ricky, I, I don't know. Like, does that resonate with you? I, I'm surprised that that ranked because I, in most of my um, workplaces that I've been in, I have to search my brain. I haven't really encountered too many complaints about intrusion on personal life. But I feel like post-pandemic, that's much more of a, a situation for people because work and, and life have bled together, at least in the remote era. So I could understand why that might be a factor. Um, although it's not really been an enormous issue in my own worldview either. Um, I'm curious in terms of the three metrics here and happiness, impact, and, and pay, how are you feeling, Ravi? Are you, do you feel like your impact is positive? My impact is positive? I mean, that's such a great question. 75% of people think that their impact is positive, And yet both of us are at the bottom of the impact totem pole in terms of the public opinion. <laughs> I don't know. I would turn it on our listeners, send in a voicemail to say whether it's really, if it impacts you or not. I think, you know, the work we're doing, it's hard to measure. It's like, you know, and I compare it to my, my parents, right? Like my mom goes to work every single day and my dad goes to work every single day and they save lives and they measure it in saving lives. When I was running schools, I was just able to be like, all right, like I have an actual person in front of me and they know more today than they knew yesterday. And that is how I would measure my work. I would say in this job and at Arena, uh, my last job that I um, continue to be involved in, it's a lot harder. At least, you know, in Arena, you had elections to win. And if I really believe that this is the right candidate, I could at least measure the impact by the election. I think in this work, journalism, the work at the branch, the last debate show, they're, they're, it's harder to say, all right, like we've moved the dial uh, in a certain way, especially when you're pushing up against a boulder that's as big as the polarization that we're encountering, you know? Um, but you have a lot of interaction with your audience at the post, et cetera. Like, do you get more positive than negative most of the time? Oh yeah. Overwhelmingly. Yes. But I would imagine if you were to pull the general public on my impact, it would be probably a very bipolar sort of result of, if you agree with me politically, I'm sure that you're into my impact. And, you know, as soon as I, I delve into the more left-leaning media spheres, I hear quite the opposite side of the coin and how I'm I'm a terrible, awful person who deserves to be ranked at second to bottom only to politicians. <laughs> so what? that's okay. It builds character. Split the crowd. I think journalism in this new age is like, like when you're doing less local beat stuff, although you do a, a decent amount of that. So I think it's more like your current role is probably more fulfilling than a lot of journalists. I think the more local you are, the better, because you're able to cover things that you see every single day in a very tangible way. You could build relationships and be part of the civic glue of society. You know, especially the smaller town you get, the more you can see your impact, you know, be like, all right, like I, I, I can run the It's a Wonderful Life test and be like, all right, if there wasn't a beat reporter at City Hall, then there would be a ton of corruption, right? Like that, I think where journalists get, I think, start to, to lose 
side of their their impact is the more national you get um because it's it kind of feels like you're um you know just a a raindrop in an ocean uh there is one other piece of inf- interesting information from this uh Todd Rose uh 2021 study which is there was another discrepancy that's relevant to the last segment we did which is when asked um on the on the sort of metric of no one receives preferential treatment at work based on factors other than their performance there was also a spread here so overall people ranked at 18 whereas they felt like society as a whole ranked at 29 so meaning people cared more about no one receiving preferential treatment they cared more about it than they thought other people cared about it um which is really interesting and there are huge differences based on race so blacks are relatively aligned and and rank it the same as they believe societal rank asians have a huge spread they rank at 12th they rank at the highest of all races so asians believe that nobody should receive preferential treatment based on anything other than their performance uh, but they think society ranked at 20. I also think that that's one of those like kind of tyranny of the minority sort of um, issues where because someone like a company is hiring corporate DEI and stuff, you might feel as though that's how everyone actually thinks in their heart of hearts and you might rank that higher. But in all reality, I think most Americans, when you look at the actual polling data, are against unfair preferences when it's actually asked to them in a proper way. Hey, this is Ricky. You've reached the last debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the town. Shall we turn to some voicemails? Yes. Uh, well, let's start, Ricky, with a tweet that I got from Luis Linares. Uh, and he said the following. He said, quote, your, your SCOTUS discussion was outstanding. I'm a politically eclectic atheist and value the establishment clause. Thomas wants to revisit, uh, parentheses, overturn employment division versus Smith. 1990. Uh, Alito and Gorsuch are likely on board, leaving two more votes open. My concern is, could we slippery slope our way to after hypothetically overturning employment division versus Smith? Religious laws override secular ones, i.e. I will not follow this secular law. And here is the passage to justify my view. So uh, that was the tweet. Um, so the, the case that, that uh, Luis is referencing, Employment Division versus Smith, held that free exercise of religion is not a basis for exemption from laws. Uh, you cannot exercise the free exercise clause or you cannot use the free exercise clause to challenge a law as long as the law is neutral, not motivated by a desire to interfere with religion, and it has to apply to everyone. So a good example is... I live next to a mosque. I hear it every day. And to be clear, I have no problem with the call to prayers. There are some people in my building who complain about it. Now, the whole separate question about all that, but let's pretend that the people in my building lobbied uh, the city council of New York to pass an ordinance in this neighborhood about noise, but it was specifically about the call to prayer across the street. That probably wouldn't withstand uh, employment division versus Smith. But let's pretend that the mosque moved into the neighborhood and there's an already existing noise ordinance that says you have to keep your noise down a certain amount. And that does affect the volume level of the call to prayer, et cetera, then um, that would stand because the law wasn't about them. Uh, It applies to everyone equally. 
And uh, I do th- share Luis's concern that if you had more Gorsuch's and Thomas's, then employment division would be revisited. It does seem that Roberts and Kavanaugh are not on board with this, um, in part because when they granted cert on the 303 case, they, uh, um, if I remember correctly, indicated that they were not going to, uh, they weren't going to entertain that on free exercise grounds. So yeah, but I think it's a super interesting question. Well, you and Luis are much well, more well-versed in this world than I am, so I'll leave it to you two, but let's hear from Joe. Hi, my name is Joe, and I love, love, love the Lost Debate podcast, and I really loved your episode about AI, and I've loved all of your topics about AI. It is really informed um, how I think about the issue and how I engage with the issue among people in my world. I think it was Ravi who said a couple of weeks ago that he's comparing the hype around AI to the hype around crypto. And while I don't think that's completely wrong, I think I got one thing better that really informs my thinking about it. And that's if you rewind 10 to 15 years ago, the hype around 3D printing as not just initiating a creative destruction of a technology, but the creative destruction of an industry where you were going to see the end of manufacturing labor as we know it. You were going to see the end of um, globalized labor, um, bringing jobs back to the U.S., and really just radically transforming society. And I'm not in the industrial space, so I'm happy to be wrong about this. But the hype around 3D printing just never really materialized or at least hasn't materialized in the 10 to 15 years since it's come about. And so what really informs my thinking about AI is to always just take a step back that people deal on the extremes and let's let the process go forth before we say this is going to radically transform the world. I'm not saying it can't, but I think we have more examples in history we're radically transforming things like a 3D printing just doesn't transform the world the way we think it does. So um, that's what informs my thinking. Um, it seems to be in a little bit of a contrast between you two. Uh, so I look forward to any uh, responses and hopefully criticisms of my way of thinking. And again, love the show and love what you guys do. Thanks. I was actually thinking not specifically of this exact parallel, but that's an interesting thought because I don't even really remember the the panic over 3D printing um, though that makes perfect sense in the factory uh, situation but I was thinking recently just about like the dot-com bubble and how massively overvalued at least in my view some of these AI startups are of just throwing money at the wall and seeing what sticks basically I do feel like we're in that frenzy moment right now and pretty soon it's going to cool down when we hit a a certain limit and like chat GPT and BARD doesn't become more advanced day by day by day as it feels like they are right now. So I kind of agree that there's there's room for cooling and we might be in at least a premature panic right now because I I feel like there's a misconception that the exponential like increase in this just over the past couple months will necessarily be sustained. I think it very well could be, but I think it also very well could kind of taper off and and cool off. Yeah. I I think like it's never good to panic about anything because it's almost never effective, but I do think it's valid to be concerned, especially by the lack of thought 
collective thought that we've given to this and the fact that like we're basically just letting the technology play out like there's very little i know the biden announced like some pretty weak stuff this week and congress is holding hearings by the time they're finished wrapping everything up and doing anything of consequence the technology will be uncontainable it may already be and so it, it does give me some concern that there is this technology that is as powerful as it is with with potential far-reaching impacts that it has and that we're doing very little to shape it at a societal level. Uh, at the same time, I'm not sure what the alternatives are other than to try to be a winner and not a loser in this new environment. And so I think of like, if you're thinking about where to put your energy, I do think... Um, I do think trying to figure out how to be an, like an expert at, on AI as it relates to your chosen field and or pivot in a way that you're squarely in a protected field from AI or that you're in a field that's you know susceptible to AI, but that you're in, sitting in the winner's seat instead of the loser's seat. That's what I would be spending my energy on right now. And let's hear one more voicemail from Graham. Hi, this is Graham. I'm calling about uh, school choice. I'm a little late to the dance on this one, but throughout your discussions, I've noticed that uh, the transportation issue was kind of glossed over. Um, I imagine school choice would primarily be also a transportation issue. It's most of the schools uh, that I imagine are failing or having troubles. Uh, the communities that they serve, most likely those people don't have uh, multiple modes of transportation. Uh, they may not uh, have nine to five jobs that allow them to uh, transport their child to a different school. Uh, they could also be commuters who have a long commute who aren't able to take their kids to school. I just think that uh, if you have a transportation issue, there's an illusion of school choice. Uh, and what happens to those schools that uh, that see a migration of those people that can but don't, that can move out but don't? I think he must be referring to the conversation with Corey DeAngelis, and I and I do think. I was left in that conversation thinking that Corey didn't properly address the concern around what it really means to run a school system and make it inclusive for enough people. And I think transportation was one of several sort of blind spots that he has. And I'm a supporter of most methods of school choice, but I do think that we need to be honest about the realities of it. And one of those realities is that if you're creating schools of choice, you need to have certain systemic solutions to ensure that people can access that choice and that also that people don't fall through the cracks. And there were two things that Corey said that concerned me in that conversation. One was that he wanted to allow schools to uh, pick and choose which kids they can serve and still receive public dollars. The problem I had with that, and I said this to them in that interview, and I've been thinking about it ever since, and I continue to have a problem with it, is if every school did that, there are certain students who could be left out. And this is not a theoretical thing. I've seen it. Like even in the traditional system, people play hot potato with certain high need students. And so if there's no man, and that's even in a, in a world where we require schools to, to educate those kids, but the schools are bucking the law. Now in a world where they aren't required to do that, there's going to be a lot of kids left out of the system uh, and they're going to be congregated in the same schools and that's bad. Uh, so we need to make sure that doesn't happen. Two, and then that's one of the reasons why I really like well-regulated public charter schools is because they by and large operate by the same set of rules and have to allow every kid to to enter their school. I think on the transportation front, it's very locally dependent. In New York City, for example, uh, 
le- transportation is less of an issue. Kids, especially at a certain age, can take our uh, flawed but pretty impressive subway system almost anywhere in the city. I had friends in Staten Island that used to go to Stuyvesant in Manhattan. They would take it two hours to get to high school every day because they felt it was a good school. So if you live in New York City, you're in good shape. If you live in Chicago, you're probably in good shape. If you live in Boston, you're probably in good shape. If you live in Nashville, where I ran schools, it's tricky because you don't have the public transportation system in the same way. For high school, you can get away with using the bus, but middle school and elementary school, it's a problem. And this was a big, big, big battle we had uh, with opponents of school choice because those are the people who were preventing us from running integrated busing systems. Because what I, I thought should have worked in Nashville um, and that some cities have, have, have flirted with is having one busing system for the whole city for K to 12 students that services all students and you run routes that get students from A to B in an organized way instead of crisscrossing busing lines. Uh, but I could do a whole podcast about that. But needless to say, I agree with the listener that, that transportation is a big issue. Uh, and if you don't have an equitable and robust transportation system, it limits the ability of school choice to have the kind of impact that it needs uh, or that it should have. And so it's a real thing. Well, with that, thank you everybody for listening. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Um, your reviews, your five-star reviews make a huge difference to us. Uh, also, uh, as you can see, we love hearing from you. We love your voicemails. Uh, 321-200-0570. That's 321-200-0570. We have new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. We will see you on Thursday. Thank you.